Welcome to Motos and Friends, the weekly podcast brought to you by the editors at Ultimate Motorcycling. My name is Arthur Coldwells. This week, senior editor Nick DeSena has just returned from the sunny South Africa launch of the new Husqvarna Norden 901 Expedition. There are a host of upgrades from the standard Norden 901, and Nick gives us his thoughts on those and how they affect the bike's overall performance off-road and on. You must be familiar with the iconic Suzuki Hayabusa. It's one of the most exciting sport bikes ever made. For 2023, the Hayabusa is even faster and the most technologically advanced version ever. Visit suzukicycles.com to learn more, or of course, get down to your local Suzuki dealer and check it out in person. Pictures do not do it justice. In our second segment, Associate Editor TJ Adams chats with Joe Begelfer. Joe was born in the Ukraine back when it was part of the old USSR, and he came to the US with his parents as a small child. Joe's passion is for vintage and classic BMW boxer twin motorcycles, and his collection includes some rare birds indeed. Joe is a real rider, and every one of the bikes in his collection is a real rider too. Joe's prodigious knowledge and infectious enthusiasm about these quirky, older machines is fun to listen to. So, from all of us here at Motos and Friends, we hope you enjoy this episode. The 2023 Husqvarna Norden 901 Expedition. So, this is essentially the up-spec version of the Norden 901, which came out... About a year and change ago, I believe that bike is marked a 2022 model, and we first rode that in the Azor Islands. Jess McKinley did that, and essentially it's your travel enduro, and the Norden 901 is in the same family of motorcycles and derived from the same family of motorcycles as the KTM 890 Adventure lineup. So... Um, the more direct comparison, because you can't really talk about Husqvarna and not mention KTM or vice versa, um, you know, the, the Norden 901 is, you can look at it two ways. Uh, you know, it's an 890 Adventure R that's been gussied up with some touring elements, or it's an upgraded Norden 901. Uh, you know, when we're talking about the expedition model in particular. However, that's kind of where we're at. So that's where our thinking should be. So I guess starting at the beginning, the, the motor is obviously the now well-known parallel twin. Is that correct? Have they done anything special to it, if that's the case? No, no. The, the engine, frame, things like that, those are all direct carryovers, uh, you know, and they're all shared between the greater 90. Norden 901 family, as well as the, the 890 Adventure uh, family. And it's also seen in the 890 Duke, et cetera, et cetera. So you're still dealing with the same, uh, the same engine. Obviously, you know, you're getting the same uh, 105 horsepower claimed and uh, 74 foot-pounds of torque. Um, and the engine itself, you know, it, it is something that I've come to appreciate in the street bikes, as well as the the adventure bikes, you know, moving from the 790 to the 890, I think there was a, 
a pretty pretty significant step forward. They they did a lot of internal changes that just made the engine much more manageable, much more rideable as well. Uh, if I remember correctly, they added some weight to the crank, which tended to chill the engine out, just made it less sort of revvy. Um, and you know, again, it is still that same eight nine nine cc parallel twin engine. So on the street, when you're riding the Norden 901 Expedition, you have something that's quite relative to the other, the other motorcycles in the, the greater lineup between brands. Um, <clears throat> has really good low-end torque, uh, very exciting mid-range, and it doesn't really give up the ghost if you start winding it out. And when you're just kind of cruising along at highway speeds, you know, it's not too buzzy. Um, it doesn't feel like it's strained, you know, pushing a motorcycle that in the case of the Norden 901 Expedition, it does weigh a little bit more than the other bikes in, in the family. Um, you know, it weighs rounds right in that 500 pound, 503 pound mark, fully fueled. So it's not the lightest motorcycle on, on the planet. Um, but still, the engine doesn't feel stressed. And, you know, you can still pick up the front end um pretty easily just sort of whacking on the power in second second gear coming out of a corner on the street if you got good traction it'll easily just loft the front end naturally um so for a big adventure bike that's always kind of fun now taking that off-road you still get that tractable power um and you can apply that power into those low grip situations now you do have multiple ride modes. And because we're talking about the Expedition uh, model in particular, you don't have to buy any of the accessory ride modes that we typically associate with Husqvarna or KTM motorcycles. Uh, because it is this up-spec model, everything's baked in. You have your uh, Explorer mode, which is essentially your rider customiz customizable mode, which allows you to adjust traction control on the fly, uh, going from off to nine. And uh, you can also adjust your different ABS modes as well as your, your throttle maps as well. Um, that unlocks the, the rally throttle map, which is the most aggressive map. You can also go to the off-road throttle map, which tames the peak horsepower a little bit. You have rain and then you have your street mode as well. Um, now, throttle mapping between all of them, I think is quite good. Uh, but let's zero in on the off-road aspect for just a minute. Anytime I went off-road, um, I would routinely flip it into that off-road mode, mainly because it cuts back peak horsepower and makes things more manageable in those low grip situations. So you get less wheel spin, uh, especially when you're in rocky terrain, you know, soft, silty stuff or sand, which is what we experienced when we were in South Africa quite a bit. So curbing peak horsepower it allows you to get more traction because you're just not you know spinning the wheel into oblivion um but still you know this is a really versatile power plant and that's evidenced by the fact that you can go off-road you can still use use that power to the best of your abilities and you know you you can really lean into that track that low-end torque and you know, into that mid-range as well, because obviously you're not going to be going 
crazy fast in most off-road situations. Now at low speed stuff, you know, having, having that sort of, uh, I don't want to say it's the lightest cable clutch pull in the world, but it is, I'll, I'll rate it on the lighter side. You know, everything is pretty manageable um, from that perspective. So yeah, I, I think, I think with, with respect to the engine, we're doing pretty good. And I should also note that you don't have to opt for a, an optional quick shifter package, which is typically seen on the other motorcycles. Um, that's already baked into the price. So you have your, your quick shifter that works. Um, you know, it works pretty well overall. There is some notchiness when you go deep into the gearbox, that transition from fifth to six is still, you know, they could smooth that out a little bit. And that's something that I've noticed on, you know, other 890 Duke cars and, and things like that. So that's kind of a characteristic of that, that engine. And it really has to do, this is something that's been explained to me from, uh, you know, staffers it has to do with calibrating the quick shifter and making sure everything's just dialed in super sweetly because there is some variance between, between bikes, which is a little interesting, but, um, no, overall, I'm, I'm super happy with the 890 uh, platform engine. I think it's a very fun, aggressive, sporty engine, and it can still translate off-road. And then the last thing I want to mention on that is you have that rally map, which is your full power mode. The truth is, you know, as fun as it is, you'd probably go faster off-road if you just popped it in that off-road setting and um, took the edge off a little bit. But, uh, you know, if you want to roost some buddies and, and just kind of ride like a maniac, then there you go. You got it. Is there any real difference between the Husqvarna and the, and the KTM? Is it, a, it sounds like it's more of a tuning kind of thing. No, there's no tuning differences between the 890 Adventure engines. Um, when you're talking about the Adventure bikes specifically, the, the street bikes are tuned a little bit differently. But um, no. If we're talking 890 Adventure and Adventure R to Norden 901 and Norden 901 Expedition, those engines are tuned the same. They they do have different strategies in terms of the mapping and what they're called. Uh, because on the on the 890 Adventure, you'll have your quote unquote rally mode, which is the mode that you can customize, you know, traction control settings and things like that. And on the Nordens that would be called your explorer mode they essentially do the same thing but in terms of raw mapping throttle feel horsepower yada 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 it's going to feel exactly the same okay so it's essentially the it's really just comes down to sort of choice of brand and styling and that kind of thing is the is the differences between the bikes um well there's more to it than that and we'll get we'll get to it the you know the Husqvarna's are positioned a little bit differently. And, and we can talk about the greater hierarchy as well. If you wanna talk about both brands without getting too into the weeds and, and getting too confusing, the hierarchy should work something like this. You're gonna have at the base, the KTM 890 Adventure, just the base model 890 Adventure. Then we move up to the Husqvarna Norden 901. It's a little bit different in terms of suspension, travel, things like that. And then, we move up to the uh, Husqvarna Norden 901 Expedition, and then the top tier, most aggressive 
uh, adventure middleweight adventure bike for both brands would be the 890 Adventure R. Now the the Expedition and the Adventure R, I would say performance-wise, are relative to each other, and they share suspension um, uh, specs. We'll say there are some differences, um, but they are positioned differently. They are meant to do different jobs. Your Adventure R is going to be a little bit lighter. It does not have the same touring accessories as the the, the Norden 901 Expedition. Um, that is your focused, hardcore, middleweight, off-road adventure bike, and probably the most extreme in the class uh, by a comfortable margin. Now, the the core changes with the Norden 901 Expedition that we can really zero in on, <clears throat> as I mentioned before, it's going to have that same uh, steel trellis frame, same engine, things like that. The big upgrade coming to the Norden 901 Expedition and what separates it from the base model Norden is the fact that it gets upgraded suspension. So with that, we have the WP uh, fully adjustable WP Explore suspension. That is the same stuff that's seen on the hardcore off-road adventure bike, the 890 Adventure R. There are some subtle differences between those two uh, suspension packages, despite the fact that they are the same branding, they have the same travel specifications. Uh, you're looking at 9.449 inches, something like that, at each end. So quite a bit of travel. Um, the core differences between the two is that the Norden 901 Expedition is set up for a more comfort um, setting, we'll say, because the the expedition model is designed for you know the long distance travel while also baking in that that extra off-road performance okay so it is it features specific valving to this bike in particular um the spring rates and oil height and things like that those are all the same between the bikes but having ridden the 890 adventure r quite a bit and then the not the 2023 version but prior generations um, and then riding this bike there are differences the suspension just doesn't feel as stiff overall um, there is that that sort of the edge is taken off a little bit um, and if if you're noticing geometry differences between the 890 Adventure R and then the Norden 901 Expedition having talked to uh, staff about that that can be chalked up basically just to weight differences between the bikes uh, the expedition is going to sit a little bit lower in the stroke because it's carrying some extra weight. Um, to that end, you have a center stand, you have this super beefy skid plate that's attached to it. You know, all those things do add up. And then naturally the bike is just going to have a little bit more static sag. But um, yeah, that suspension, that stuff is pretty incredible. Uh, I would rate it, <laughs> I would rate it pretty high as far as what you can do off-road with it. Um, uh, again, you have that, that super sizable travel, 9.4 inches. And we were in South Africa, so pretty varied terrain. We rode stuff from, you know, hard pack, um, just dirt roads, you know, your standard farm roads. We also did some fairly hardcore off-road riding, uh, doing some two track and, uh, you know, um, one hill climb that stands out in particular, super rocky 
really gnarly hill climb that uh, frankly would not be on the list for any press ride unless you happen to be KTM or Husqvarna. Um, <laughs> okay. So, you know, bumps, bump absorption is really good with the, the WP Explorer stuff. Um, and when you do start throwing around, you know, a 500 plus plan bike, you know, of course you can bottom out suspension when you're talking about adventure bikes, the, they're just bigger bikes. They weigh a little bit more. You get one of them going fast enough. You hit something hard enough. You're going to use all of that suspension travel. The good thing with the WP Explore stuff is that it's strategies when it actually bottoms out, especially with a shock, uh, when it gets to the end of its stroke, uh, there's a secondary little chamber. I'm not going to explain this entirely correctly, but it's not a hard, you know, bump stop. You're not just hitting the end of the stroke and then it's just a, ah, it's, it, it almost acts like a way a progressive spring would. So as you start getting to the last, you know, I would say 15, 10% of the stroke, you'll actually feel it slow down a little bit. And, and then it'll finally, you know, bottom out. But that really, really calms a bike down instead of just hitting that bump stop with a nice hard slap, which invariably transfers to the chassis and then can create some pretty serious instability. That's a strategy that they use in the fork and shock. Um, and it's, I would say, incredibly beneficial. Um, you know, you're able to achieve a pretty, pretty high level of grip with, with that suspension. Again, it's fully adjustable, so you can do whatever you want. The only thing that, that we noticed on the ride between a handful of different riders is, um, you know, there is a little bit of head shake at higher speed. Uh, you have to be going about 75 miles an hour off-road specifically. If you hit some, some sort of uneven terrain, uh, you could introduce a little bit of head shake and it was sort of a, it would wake you up a little bit. It never actually got loose. And this is something that, that we do need to sort of elaborate on because you can't throw an observation like that out and then not explore it. it, it it's something that I think with more time, I'd be able to tune out using, you know, suspension settings, things like that and dialing it in. Because every time I would make suspension changes, the, that characteristic went away and then uh, one of my other colleagues, he was able to get rid of it. Um, but yeah, it's definitely, definitely something that's, that's uh, specific to the expedition model. Um, Cause I, I didn't, I've never really noticed it on the 890 Adventure R. And keep in mind, those bikes do weigh um, different weights. So their behavior will be, you know, different. Um, we also were running some pretty high PSI. We were in some rocky terrain so we needed to make sure that our psis were kept a little bit higher um, just so we didn't introduce pinch flasks or smash rims things like that on that note you are running 21 and uh, 18 inch wheels so uh, you have you know plenty of capability in terms of off-road performance uh, the bike is far more off-road off-road capable than i am in most cases so um, there's really nothing stopping it there it's about as brave as you want to get 
Um, <clears throat> but yeah, in terms of just outright handling, yeah, we can we can talk about stuff like that as well. Okay, terrific. So so basically, so it handles handles extremely well. Um, it sounds as though maybe um, is it a little soft at the rear that might might do something with that head shake? Is there maybe a little extra weight? It's got those big bags on the back, those big expedition bags. Do you think that might be something to do with it? Uh, we messed with that. That's actually the first area that I started tweaking with. Um, added a little bit to the shock that didn't do much. Then we added some to the fork um, that improved it a little bit. And then, and then we just started kind of going from there and, and stiffening things up. Um, so I think initial settings that they had uh, may have been a little bit conservative, but Again, this is one of those things that you can tune out. Hand, just talking pure handling-wise, um, as a road bike, it's, it's actually quite good. And yeah, you do have 21-inch and 18-inch wheels, which don't usually equate to you know the greatest of uh, on-road manners. Naturally, 17-inch wheels are just going to be much better. You have uh, less, less unsprung mass. Uh, spinning, it, it's just physics are working in, in a 17 inch wheels favor. Um, you also have more grip because 17 inch wheels tend to be wider as well. Sure. But I mean, overall, the street handling of the of the uh, 901 expedition was is pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't feel loose or skittish or anything like that. And uh, that's that's something that I can note on the 890 Adventure R. Um, I would say that the expedition's additional weight actually chills it out a little. Sure, that makes sense. And the the Pirelli, I actually want to get this right because the name is so so long. The Pirelli Scorpion Rally STR tires, uh, they come on a multitude of bikes at this point. They're standard fitment, but um, as a road tire, it's a it's a just visually, it's a very blocky and aggressive. Um, adventure tire and you'd think uh, maybe not so much road grip they they work really well on the street um we rode a couple of really really awesome twisty canyons um in south africa and just the grip that you get and the amount of lean angle that you can carry is more than more than what I'd say most adventure riders would really want. I mean, it's to the fact where you can start dragging the center stand if you want to get, you know, that brazen with it. Um, and you have to carry a, a fairly decent lean angle to start doing that. So I don't think that that's going to be something that that will slow anyone down, um, you know, necessarily. So it, it's just those tires work really well on the street. Um, Off-road, uh, those tires work fairly decently as, as well. My criticism of the Pirelli uh, Scorpion Rally STR tire has always been that in sand and softer stuff, you know, like mud, the front doesn't really have a great edge grip. The rear hooks up very nicely. So you can often pick yourself up, pick the bike up on the gas. Um, and in hard pack stuff, it, the tires actually do pretty well. Um, so there's that. It's just that front tire in particular is not known for its uh, uh, it, its sand abilities, we'll say. And to be fair, in my opinion, 500 pound motorcycles in the sand do this thing just, um, it's called not being good ever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine.
you know, there are shades of shades of that, but generally when we're talking deep sands, um, everything struggles. Um, at any rate, that's the big core mechanical change when we're talking, you know, Norden 901 moving into the Norden 901 expedition, the suspension upgrade. Um, pretty sizable thing there. And, you know, if I would say there's one thing holding the Norden 901 back in terms of outright off-road performance, it's going to be its suspension. It has um, front and rear suspension numbers are different from this bike by over an inch, if I'm recalling my spec sheet correctly, but it goes further than just raw length where, you know, the, the damping it, and spring rates, things, things are just different. Um, you do have roughly 10 inches of ground clearance on the, the expedition. So there's plenty of ground clearance there. And if you do run out of ground clearance, well, you have that seriously beefy bash guard that I put to use more than once or twice some of those rocky sections and it's it's really heavy duty i mean in in a lot of cases you know the stock skid plates tend to be you know thinner aluminum paneling and sometimes even plastic depending on the brand you're talking about and while they're all they will offer some protection not as much as this this is heavy duty this is definitely aftermarket worthy um so I would, you know, and it's also in the, 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 the accessory catalog. Um, then of course, the other little accessories that we want to talk about with the expedition in particular, and what sort of makes it the expedition is the fact that you have a factory installed heated seat along with heated grips and you have a taller touring windscreen. And then you also have the uh, uh, soft luggage that's that's directly bolted onto the bike from the factory. Um, so talking about pure comfort, uh, seating position wise, it's not too different from the Norden 901. The Norden 901 platform tends to be a little bit chunkier than the KTM 890 Adventure R. It has more plastic, um, you know, it, it has more wind protection overall. Uh, it's not as narrow as the 890 Adventure. It is when you're talking about just standing over the seat so just you know over the saddle height things like that feels pretty relative but the the tail section tends to bow out a little bit more and then the the front section around the, the five gallon fuel tank uh, tends to extend a little bit more when compared to the the very thin 890 adventure um that offers more wind protection overall for your legs for your upper torso you also have that taller non-adjustable uh touring windscreen at my height, five foot, 10 inches, that windscreen's pretty much perfect. So while I would want it to be adjustable, it's like spot on in terms of where I would want it. There is some airflow. You have a little air gap, so you get some airflow. But, uh, you know, the, the, the wind blast sits just above where my peak would be for my helmet. So I'm never getting that thing where if I like sit up totally upright i'm not getting my head snapped back or anything like that and i still get some airflow so i'm not overheating um that's something that you can see on some of the the touring bikes with um taller windscreens so that's that's nice uh, the only sort of downside to having that taller windscreen is when you start riding through mud or water or anything like that you're gonna get the bike dirty and uh if you 
like recording stuff, you just have a brown windscreen ahead of you. Now, naturally, it's not really a big deal if you're um, not recording video, but uh, yeah, it's definitely there. It's very dirty. So. All right. So it's, it sounds as though ergonomically it's got the same the same ergonomics as the 901 and it's it's comfortable and more than capable of going distance either off road or on road as needed. Yes. I mean, seat height has increased, obviously, just because of that suspension travel increase. Sure. And, and seat height is variable. Uh, if I remember the spec sheet correctly, it's something like 33.6 inches and up to 34.4 inches. Those are fairly sizable numbers, but, you know, uh, I have a 32 inch inseam and, and when wearing proper riding boots, I'm able to get my boots on the deck. Plus the, the chassis overall is pretty thin. So still able to, to dab my feet when I need to, to sort of save myself. If I was in a super rocky technical section and kind of needed to doggy paddle my way out of it. Oh, okay. All right. Even, even when looking at the shorter riders in the group, um, you know, a fairly experienced off-road group of, of guys and gals, uh, even the shorter riders weren't struggling as much as you might think based on, on those spec sheet numbers. Um, it doesn't feel as tall as an 890 Adventure R. Again, that bike is lighter. It sits a little bit higher as well. Um, so, you know, the, the added weight, yes, there's added weight, but it's all kept really low. You do have to remember that it's a center stand, a, um, you know, that, that heavy duty skid plate, that's going to be the bulk of your extra weight right there, but it's kept, you know, at the lowest point of the, the, the motorcycle. So, um, it doesn't negatively affect the motorcycle too badly, but yeah, you know, those, those touring features do, do help out. Then you have the, the bags as well. Um, the only criticism I have of the bags, apparently we are running pre-production bags. So some of the stitching was coming undone a little bit prematurely. I think those bags only had, you know, like something like five or 600 miles on them overall, but you could already see some wear going on. Um, according to Husqvarna representatives, um, they're gonna be double stitching those bags instead of single stitching. Functionally, I do think the bags are really cool. They're soft bags instead of hard bags. You can option out for hard cases if you want to go that route. Personally speaking, um, I think you have more than enough storage to do a expedition. And um, <laughs> okay, I tend to pack light anyway. But you know, the the soft luggage has some some advantages. First, soft luggage. If it takes a hit. It's less likely to deflect the motorcycle in any direction. Um, you know, also it's soft. So if it falls on you, it's probably still going to suck, but um, not as much as getting hit by a hard paneer. Um, obviously, hard paneers are more durable, just right out of the gate. It's not a fabric of any kind. It's not a cloth. Okay, there's that. That's, that's sort of a given when talking soft luggage versus hard luggage. Um, but also the soft luggage tends to be much lighter. So there's that. Um, I, I do like the little clasps on the luggage. That was really cool. Kind of a nifty little feature. Um, once they started getting super filthy in the South African dirt, which is this really fine sort of silty stuff, 
kind of found its way into everything, including my lungs. You know, the, the latches, because they're sort of intricate, they would tend to sort of bind up a little bit. So I think a classic, you know, backpack style clip, definitely not as cool or interesting, but probably a little bit more robust of an option there. Uh, just some things to improve upon. But yeah, the luggage is a really good touch. It's one of the main features of the expedition overall. Um, just needs to be a little bit more robust. Um, and Husqvarna said they're working on that. So that's something that, that they're aware of. Yeah, so those are pretty much the, the core changes, you know, going from a, a Norden 901 to the Norden 901 Expedition. You've got your, your windscreen. You've got all of your optional electronics that are baked right in. So no extra charges there. Boom, done. Okay, cool. You've also got your heated grips and your heated seat, both of which get quite toasty. Now it was a little bit hotter in South Africa for us. Um, so I only used them in the morning, like one day. And then you, the biggie, the biggie is that WP Explorer suspension. That's kind of the selling point for the expedition for me. And what that does is it repositions the Norden 901. And, you know, admittedly, I think the 890 Adventure R is going to have a little bit more in terms of off-road performance. But what this bike is doing is it's extending its range and its off-road performance simultaneously. So naturally, with all things in motorcycling, there are going to be some compromises. You're adding, you know, some weight. So might not be as hardcore as the 890 Adventure R, but this is going to be taking a different direction. This is this is really for that person that wants to pack on the miles on and off-road. Um, so you have 21 and 18 inch wheels, serious off-road performance, and overall an adventure bike that's incredibly, incredibly capable. I mean, seeing what some of my hardcore off-road colleagues are able to do with it and what I was able to do with it in my, um, we'll say, borderline competent off-road abilities. <laughs> okay. So it's, so it's impressive then. So I guess the only, the last remaining question then is, is there a big price difference between the standard Norden 901 and the Expedition? Not really, considering what you're getting. There's a $1,300 price difference. So it does raise it, raise it up to $15,799. But if you think about just the core components that you're getting, so you're getting a touring windscreen, the bash guard, heated grips, heated seat, the luggage, and the suspension. Right. And all, and all the electronics turned on. Yeah, yeah. So at $1,300, you can't take a standard Norden 901 and do that to this bike and get the same result. For anywhere near that, yeah. That actually sounds pretty good value for money. Yeah, and in the overall grand scheme of things, um, yeah, it's getting up there in terms of, you know, $15,799. But if you're comparing it to uh, Ducati Desert X, some of the BMWs, it still presents a, a fairly competitive value. Um, in fact, it's, it's, it's cheaper than, than some of those other motorcycles. Um, so yeah, overall, uh, if you're going to go the distance, then, then yeah, the, the Norden 901 Expedition definitely lives up to its name. Um, that said, it also looks pretty cool. Uh, that is one criticism I have with the 890 Adventure R, so it's pretty. Yeah, no, the 901 Norton, Norton looks really good. I, I agree with you. I like it. Um, 
there's more body work yeah. and so there's more stuff more weight i saw one on the street the other day and it looked really good i was impressed but yeah it's, yeah it's an interesting interesting looking bike just because husqvarna is taking a more um stylized approach to its aesthetics um but yeah no overall i was super impressed with it i i do enjoy the street handling i think it's a very agile bike you can just kind of sit bolt upright and throw it around from those big wide handlebars you know the only thing we didn't mention is that the brakes you know are, are the same as you know the the other bikes i would say that's like my kind of core complaint is that the brakes can use a bit more feel now i fully fully respect that they used a an axial master cylinder which in an off-road capacity um it's probably a good idea because you just don't have the same type of bite that a radial master cylinder would but even in that context i think that some of the competitors you know the desert x uh, some of the bmws just have better brake feel than what's seen here so i think uh, husqvarna and ktm can definitely improve on that with their uh, j1 uh, master cylinder and, and calibers just i think there's room for improvement there not to say that the brakes are bad they do work well they are going to stop you everything's good the abs systems Sorry, we didn't talk about that, but that did lead me into that conversation. The off-road ABS works incredibly well. Um, and that's something that I, I, I would always sort of flip into the, the off-road modes. And then uh, you do want to double check that. That is something that, that we should note. Um, there's a little bit of an oddity with the current generation uh, Husqvarna bikes. And this, this applies to 2023. Um, and forward. So you're in your explorer mode, which is your customizable mode or your off-road modes, and you've switched to an off-road ABS mode. Now, crucially, if you flip back to say a street mode, which defaults to a road ABS setting, that will baseline all of the ABS modes to a road setting. And it's apparently a safety thing. The logic is that if you're flipping to a street map, they don't want you to default to an off-road ABS mode while you're riding on the street. The problem is now everything's defaulted to an, an off-road or a, sorry, an on-road ABS mode. So even if you go back to those off-road maps, it's going to have on-road ABS. You got to double check that, go into the menu, switch it back as you cross from the street to the trail. Just something to note. Um, we initially thought it was like a software glitch because we're like, dude, we keep switching this back. It's a safety thing. Um, <clears throat> okay, cool. Whatever. That said, the ABS works really, really, really well. Um, when you're in off-road ABS, you kill ABS in the rear, maintaining it on off-road specific setting in the front. You can grab the front end and really do some hard braking off-road. Works very nicely. And same thing for the traction control that that went sort of under the radar in this conversation, but having that explorer mode being able to adjust traction control on the fly is a feature that i i think the reason i went under the radar for this conversation is because we're sort of taking it for granted at this point um it's an established an established feature on the ktm and house farm motorcycles but their traction control settings especially when you start lowering it down into those off-road um equivalent um settings the way it manages power how you can manage a slide um, it really helps. And when you get into sort of loose, rocky situations, 
putting things down in maybe that two to three range allows you to still get good drive and deal with the fact that you're going to be introducing a lot of wheel spin um, just because you're in a very low grip situation. So that TC really does help in my opinion. And especially for someone of my off-road skill level, um, you know, I joke about myself and my off-road riding ability, but the reality is these systems do help me. So greatly appreciated. And that's kind of the wrap up of the conversation. Um, so yeah, went to South Africa, tried to pet a zebra, uh, <laughs> rode off-road. On a great bike by the sound of it. Yeah, super solid bike. There's only a handful of quirks, like I mentioned before. You know, I'd like better brake feel. The bags need to be improved upon, um, which Husqvarna says they are they are improving on them. And um, uh, the head shake stuff, which, in my opinion, can be tuned out. All right. Terrific. Hey, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Appreciate your time and your insight. In our second segment, Associate Editor TJ Adams chats with Joe Begelfer. Joe was born in the Ukraine back when it was part of the old USSR, and he came to the US with his parents as a small child. Joe's passion is for vintage and classic BMW Boxer Twin motorcycles, and his collection includes some rare birds indeed. Joe is a real rider, and every one of the bikes in his collection is a real rider too. Joe's prodigious knowledge and infectious enthusiasm about these quirky, older machines is fun to listen to. Reputation precedes it, unmatched performance and striking style define it. We're talking about the 2023 Suzuki Hayabusa. This legendary sport bike is the quickest, most technologically advanced and aerodynamic Hayabusa ever. Its raw power and unparalleled acceleration matches your own drive, while its head-turning design embodies your spirit's flair. Led by the Suzuki Intelligent Ride System, the Hayabusa gives riders a comprehensive collection of electronic rider aids like the bi-directional quick shifter, the drive mode selector, launch control system, and the cruise control system that simultaneously increases performance, comfort, and rideability. While its advanced analog and TFT LCD display panel connects you to the ride like never before, blending over 20 years of tradition with innovation. Plus, the Hayabusa comes in three new eye-catching color combinations and it offers a full suite of available Suzuki Genuine accessories that you can choose from. The ultimate rider waits, so head into your local Suzuki dealer now or visit suzukicycles.com to learn more. As a child growing up, I was always tinkering with my, motor, with my uh, bicycles and with whatever I could lay my hands on, I was always tinkering with my stuff. And uh, I was particularly interested in the machinery, you know, like such as bicycles, motorcycles, you know, anything that moved you around basically. So naturally, as I was growing up, uh, I had my eye on, 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 on the motorcycles. Uh, uh, back in those days, it was, um, very difficult for people to afford a car so the next best thing was a motorcycle 
And uh, these motorcycles, is, I, I was fascinated with them, uh, running, uh, running around, looking at anywhere, anywhere I could find one parked, you know, I would look to try to make sense. How does it work and what does it do and how many cylinders does it have or, uh, you know, what, what, what does this do? What does that do? Why, why do we have all these levers, you know? And uh, so there was always a curiosity and interest uh in 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 the motorcycles gen in general so you didn't have formal training you just started taking things apart and putting them back together yeah i mean as as a child i was uh as i mentioned was fascinated with this sort of thing and um <laughs> i remember when i was about maybe 11 12 years old i i i was saving my money from everywhere all the holidays, you know, I need birthday money, any money that I could call my money, because money was hard to come by in USSR, as you know. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> People worked, uh, you know, very hard for very little. I was saving all my money for a long time. And when I had 15 rubles, I remember, I had found a, a friend of a friend of a friend who had a, a, a bicycle motor kit. All right. So we used to call it a moped, uh, moped. So uh, you could uh, purchase a moped and they were not cheap still, but that's like a bicycle fitted out with a motor and sprocket and chain and all that, you know. So you got the whole vehicle. It, was, it wasn't just a kit that you put onto a bicycle. It was yeah. a whole vehicle. Yeah. So, the, so these mopeds were available, but I couldn't afford one. So the next best thing is to find a motor kit that would convert your bicycle into a moped. Right. And I took those 15 rubles. <laughs> I went to this friend. My parents didn't know anything about it. And I purchased this kit, you know, the motor, the gas tank, the throttle, the clutch lever, uh, the sprocket and all that stuff that was it cost me 15 rubles. It was big money. You know, I mean, it's a pretty good chunk of money. And it took me a long time to save it up. And I took my uh, bicycle. Uh, I had like a mid-sized bicycle, not a full-size, but a mid-sized bicycle. Right. And I started, yeah, when I brought that motor kit home, my parents freaked out. I mean, they're like, what are you doing? Why do you spend money on such junk? You know, what do you need this for? And this and that, you know. Uh, my parents were never um, in favor of me riding a motorcycle or anything, you know, that would be dangerous, you know, and uh, I was always <laughs> going my way, basically doing it my way, right? That's what I like to do. I want to do it, this and that. So I started... Um, converting this bicycle of mine with this this motor to make it a moped yeah I was about 11 maybe 12 years old you know and actually my dad helped me out a little bit in the end he was kind of maybe proud of me that I stood my you know ground and that's what I wanted to do and and I told him another thing that you know I I would love to become a to become a mechanic because I was very fascinated with people that really, you know, understood the machinery. They, they were good with their hands. They used their knowledge, you know, their 
being a mechanic, there's, you know, you have to be multifaceted. You, you have to not just know a lot, but you have to be able to do a lot, you know, do, do different, um, yeah, hands on it's complex. Tasks, you you know? have to be able to solve yeah. problems. You have to be able to um, put things yeah. together, take things yeah, apart, and, and understand what makes things work and, and be inventive. Yeah, this was. Yeah, this this was this was the part that interests me is that it was so um, abroad, you know, not just stuck on one little thing, and and that you know because I get bored easily. So yeah, it's a big subject. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, anyways, I, um, yeah, and I've completed that conversion and uh, it worked. Great. Uh, yeah, I remember I had to haul it. We lived on the fifth floor and I had to haul this bicycle with the motor kit that was pretty heavy. We didn't have an elevator in, in our building and I had to haul it and I stored that thing on the, on the uh, like a, a, a balcony every you know we had balconies back there so and then i would go once in a while i remember i left the door open because the balcony was right off of uh, my parents bedroom and i went ahead and i started this thing up and it starts smoked out the whole house <laughs> <laughs> oh my god they came home to them. why does it smell like gasoline here? <laughs> yeah so it was uh, very interesting and you could just ride that you you rode that on the road did you even at that age you just when it when i managed to start it i did you know you had to pedal it and then pop the clutch and and uh, it, it it was just uh, uh, as a child i enjoyed it so much later on well i knew at that point that you know it was my calling kind of you know that's what i really enjoyed doing but i at the same time i was attending a uh, formal music school i was a, a music school um, student full-time uh and my parents you know they we we thought that i was going to become a musician you know a professional musician and so forth and so on but it um it was um not meant to be, I guess, because in the end, I did became I did become an auto mechanic when we came to the United States. I was seventeen. Your parents came to terms with that; they were happy come the finish. Oh, they were ecstatic because when we came to the United States, and you see all these cars, and it, it it meant you'll always have a job, and you'll you'll be fine, you know. Yes. Musicians, on the other hand, have struggled, mm. you know. You have to it's it's a very uh different thing you know in terms of job and uh just being practical your 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 security job security you know my my sister tried it actually my sister is also a musician she's a violinist and uh, she had a very difficult time in the end uh she became a, a computer programmer and she has far more music education than i do gosh so neither one of us nor my sister or myself had followed the the dream of the, the the plans of the USSR us being professional musicians because back there it meant something it was more stable it was considered very stable profession and so that was encouraged by the sort of the the governing bodies 
yeah, and it, it wasn't free. It wasn't it wasn't subsidized by government. My parents had to pay for it for that school for the schooling. Yeah, I have some insight. I have a, a, a another friend, and she was saying everybody has to go to college. Everybody has to kind of go down a certain route. It's not like out here, you know, individuality, and it's it's more of a cookie cutter society, mm. you know, back in those days. Nowadays, of course, it's different. It's, it's been a long time since. You know, we left USSR back in uh, 1972, so things have changed quite a bit. Yes, yes. You know, and well, there's no more USSR period, but no. when it, you know, e even even back in the 90s, before the um, breakup of the USSR, things were a lot different. You know, we we were one of the um, early, early immigrants, early 70s immigrants from the from the Ukraine. So you came to the to the States when you were 17. Right. So, yeah. OK, so why BMWs? You are now riding BMWs all the time. I always see you on fabulous old BMWs. Well, um, it's been I evolved sort of into a BMW. I grew up on. Yeah. When when I came to the United States, my parents, they, they didn't want me to own any motorcycles they did not want me to ride and you know it's dangerous and this and that like any parent would you know or most parents let's say and um but uh, what i think what um happened initially is that back in ukraine when i was growing up there was a uh, well there were these russian made motorcycles there were a czechoslovakian motorcycle yava uh, there was a Russian-made uh, two-cycle uh, uh, motorcycle, uh, two-cylinder, two-cycle Ij, it's called. Uh, there were uh, there was the Vostok, which means the uh, east, east. Vostok is east. Um, it was a single uh, kind of a compact, smaller motorcycle, also two-stroke. And then there was a K750 or M72, the big boy. Nice. The big kahuna, you know, top of the top of the heap, you know, uh, if you owned uh, one of those, uh, you were uh, something because that bike, yeah, that was the like the top of the line. Well, that M72 or same thing as case 750 or same thing as uh, Dnieper. The same thing as Ural, the Euro. Euro yeah. yeah, they were all appropriated by Russians after the war or some at some point in time. They were appropriated from the BMW. They pretty much, well, you know, they appropriated things after the war. They took whatever they wanted. They did whatever they wanted. Yeah. So they took the uh, BMW R71 they took four of them to Russia and they sent them to four different areas and they have reverse engineered those motorcycles to call it their own. But in fact, it was a BMW R71, every one of them. Wow. K750, Dnieper, uh, Ural, or the, um, uh, M72. M72, by the way, well, is Moskva, Moscow, Moskva 72. 
because initially it was a R71, so they called it Moscow 72. <laughs> they went up one digit. <laughs> it was the same motorcycle that these bikes have fascinated. They're big. And by the way, these motorcycles were not allowed to be written without a sidecar. Oh, why is that? These motorcycles, yeah, sidecar was a must. I've never seen a one of those motorcycles, like a K751, those big motorcycles, without a sidecar. Yeah, I think it was a mandatory. Right. I'm thinking, I'm guessing. So when when I came to United States, when we came to United States, of course, I now I have this this access to all these motorcycles, and you know I'm making a little bit of money, so I can go out and you know get what I want. And I, and I started, you know, I kind of leaned towards Japanese bikes because that's you know it was late 70s, mid to late 70s, uh, the Japanese bikes were the <laughs> most reliable, most affordable. They were awesome. They were like, you know, no brainer compared to, let's say, uh, Ducati that cost God knows how much and you have to take it into a shop every other week. And, and the, the, some of the English bikes had pretty bad reputation. You know, the Harleys, forget about the Harleys. <laughs> They're <were> like, <laughs> for the outlaws, back in those days, they were strictly outlaw bikes. <laughs> uh -huh. uh, I, I, I wish I had those bikes now. I bet. <laughs> but, uh, including English bikes, including Italian bikes, including any bike that comes from that era. I, I love that. I, I, I love the machine that, that's been around so long. And, and also... When you look at it, from my perspective, being an auto mechanic, you can really appreciate the simplicity yet genius of a design, you know. But getting closer to why BMW for me, well, I didn't grow up on them. I grew up on my my key bike was a Kawasaki. That's I went out and I bought a brand new KZ 1000 back in the day, 1979. <clears throat> wow. And um, these are the bikes I rode. Um, the BMW back then, they were around, but I knew two things about the BMW. Uh, they were very well built, reliable, and they were very expensive. <laughs> 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 I could never afford one because I remember when I went to buy my KZ 1000, it wasn't, it was under $3,000 and that included the fairing and the custom seat and the sissy bar and this and that, you know, the whole thing, brand new KZ 1000. Well, a BMW was closer to 5,000. <laughs> and it probably didn't have all the fancy bits. <laughs> That's a huge difference. Why? It's almost double. Yeah. Yeah, and the reason being is because of the way they were made, the way they were produced. It was a lot more, uh, it was more costly to produce BMW, you know, the quality of work and all of the uh, intricate uh, parts that they were putting into this machine cost money and they had to get, uh, you know, they had to get a much uh, larger sum for their for the BMW. So I didn't even dream about a BMW. They just looked okay to me. 
but I was so wrapped up in the Japanese bikes and four cylinder, the revving, high revving Yamahas, Hondas, Kawis, Suzuki's, you know. Then uh, mid eighties rolled around closer to 90. And I started hearing about this Harley Davidson is coming back with the Evo and that's crazy. It's just a completely different bike and it's just so awesome. And by 1994, I had purchased a brand new Harley Davidson Heritage Softail uh, right here at uh, Barger's uh, in the Valley. Uh, because I've never even written one, but you know, I was almost like uh, drawn. I was to like it. a zombie walking towards it, you know. And back then, they were they were very expensive to buy, and uh, and. On top of that, I had to get $2,000 certificate, store certificate, just to get one, just to get the bike. Wow. So I've spent 20 grand on that Harley. That's a complete change in direction. And I still have it, but it's such a wonderful bike nowadays. You still have it. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, it's sitting right here in my living room. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, yeah, I still have the Harley, and uh, it was a Harley for me. That's it. I went from the Japanese to a Harley and I enjoyed my Harley and I still enjoy my Harley so much. It's just a whole different, a whole different ride. It's a whole different feel and I, I love it. So time goes by, you know, I'm on my Harley enjoying myself, so forth. One day, but, but, but I'm still, you know, I'm still kind of, you know, my childhood, you know, the BMWs, especially the older ones, you know, really, really, you know, appealed to me. So one day I'm on my way to the bank in my car, I'm looking in the side view mirror and there's the guy in this vintage black with white pinstriping vintage something in the 60s BMW that exactly the BMW that I'm so crazy about in terms of how it sits, how it looks, you know, and now we have the vintage factor, you know, so we're, we're talking about like back in the 60s, this is the, uh, this particular model that he was on now that I know BMWs, it's a slash two, it's called, they're called a slash two. So the slash two reignited your passion. Yes, I I started waving at the guy, stop, stop. You know, he's, he's looking over, he's looking at his bike. He thought he was losing parts. He's pulling over, he says, what's the matter? I said, nothing, nothing's the matter. I just wanna know where do you buy one of these? <laughs> <laughs> and um, he gave me a number and I started researching slowly and, and they all looked the same to me back then because I, I knew nothing about them. I just knew that they looked awesome and I would love to have one just for kicks, you know? Well, the looks are so distinctive with the engines sticking yeah. out the sides. Yeah, the cylinders hanging out and it's just the way it sits and just the, the, the whole persona of the, of, they're, they're apart from everything else, right? When you see a BMW, the, a vintage BMW, you don't have to look to, at the insignia to see what it is. You know what it is. Just, you know what it is from a mile away, you know? But, but on top of that, I hear that they're built like more like a car than a motorcycle. So I'm wondering, what does that mean? If, well, at that point, I said, fine. 
after I built like a car. I love to have one. I found one and I started working on it. And I realized, yep, the BMW is built like a car, like basically like an automobile. It's not your conventional motorcycle concept. It's not a split case. It doesn't have the big counterweights on the crankshaft. It has a huge flywheel, just like a car, big heavy flywheel. The transmission plugs in right into the back of the motor on the spline. And then the drive shaft comes out to a final drive. It's built like a car. And cars is what I understand. <laughs> right? <laughs> so from that point on, I started learning about the BMW. You know, now I'm kind of into it, right? I kind of jumped into this whole thing. And they all look kind of similar, right? And I thought, yeah, a Beamer is a Beamer. And what I've learned is they're all different. There's so much difference from year to year, from model to model. It's there, you may not even find a one interchangeable part. They changed constantly. They did incredible. constantly, yes. And it got my interest more and more. more the more I was involved, the more I understood uh, how and why and what and found my sources of spare parts and people that were a BMW club is a very like, you know, clicky club, you know, they're a strange bunch, but <laughs> <laughs> they're mostly very nice in the nicest possible way. <laughs> Most BMW guys are like, they're locked into a BMW. They don't want to hear about anything else. See, there's difference. I'm locked into a BMW, but I like all the bikes. I like everything that's on two wheels, burning gas, making noise. That's, you know, goes without saying. But yes, BMW uh, became my passion. I uh, started understanding what the plungers are versus slash twos versus slash five slash six. Uh, I have a pre-war, a 1938 R66, which is a very desirable model. I understood what the difference was between that and, and the post-war. And it, it, there, there's just so much to know. It, it's, it's, it's crazy. That's why when I talk to someone that is not sure of you know, they don't know BMW. They know they know BMW when they see it, but they, they don't know anything else about them. There's just too much to explain to what what is the difference, you know. But uh, there's huge difference. They're constantly changing and evolving, constantly doing something. To this day, they are <clears throat> probably one of the, you know, the leading edge technology, they're just, you know, the police is all on BMWs now. Yes. Uh, they're putting out S bikes, F bikes, and this and K bikes. They, they're, they're just spread out. And, <clears throat> but the ones that I'm into are, are the R bikes. R means boxer engine, boxer because the, you know, 
the, they call it a boxer because the pistons are like going opposing, to, opposing yeah. and they're like boxing each other. Yeah. Right. And, and so that's what the, the I, 1936 yeah. bike, 38, um, 1938 bikes, sorry, is that that's running. You've got that all. Yeah, it took me uh, roughly five years to uh, put it together where um, it's running and working the way it's supposed to. Yes, it, it took quite a bit. When I purchased it, uh, I got it from a um, uh, collector in Florida. And uh, I was assured that uh, the motorcycle was working great. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not gonna bore you with the, the same old story, but you know how that goes. <laughs> yes, yeah, so one rebuild later and a lot of research. Yeah. As we see, as we say in the automotive business, <laughs> the cars that, you know, a car comes in, what kind of work does it need? Well, take the radiator cap off, put another car under it, <laughs> put the radiator cap back on. That's how much work <laughs> it needed. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> it needed a lot, yeah. I had to send out the crankshaft. It's a very, um, the R66 is pre-war. They're very different. They're very um, rare. If you need, uh, if you need the things like a crankshaft or something serious, uh, you you can not just spend a lot of money, but you can literally look for years until you get something. If you get something, you know. So Gosh. you have to be very um, working on these uh, motorcycles is what I enjoy. I enjoy working on them as much as riding them. I'm learning every day. I've been doing this for about eight years you know, collecting, working, riding the vintage BMW motorcycles. And I swear, every time you go into one, you learn another trick and you learn another thing. It's like the engineers that had put that together were really, really smart. They were very clever. Well, engineers are in general, generally clever, but you know. They are. The BMW is known for uh, a design that, you know, exceeds expectations, you know. And so do you sometimes have to make your own parts? Uh, well, there are aftermarket parts that are made. I'll be honest, like anything else, aftermarket parts are not as good as NOS, the new old stock. Mm -hmm. But if you cannot find new old stock, you have to resort to what's available. And uh, generally have to tinker with it to make it work. You know, it's, it's, it's difficult to find parts that are 80, 90 year old parts. You know? I'm sure that you can just slot in and they work, finding them in the first place and then. Yeah. And also um, <clears throat> there are three criterias working on these vintage, uh, old vintage motorcycles. There are three, three musts. Uh, be careful what you do, be very careful what you do, and be extremely careful with what you do before <laughs> you make a move. <laughs> because if you make a mistake, you don't want to mess it if up. If <laughs> you make a mistake, it can be, yeah, it can be very damaging, you know, that's the difference. Disastrous repercussions. Right. 
So what um, was your next BMW? Did you look for something specific or did another one no, I, come to you? I'm, I'm happy at the moment. I'm satisfied with my collection and I'm content with what I have. So what have you got? What, have you, well, what is your collection? How many, how many BMWs have you got? I have nine altogether. Wow. I have nine BMWs and one Zundup. A Zundup is sort of a, a, a rival of the BMW. Uh, they, they were always back and forth, stealing ideas from each other back in the day. So it was a completely different manufacturer. Yeah, completely different manufacturer, German manufacturer that uh, had produced uh, lots, uh, many, many uh, uh, smaller scale motorcycles, you know, like little scooters and, you know, they were into transportation uh, more so than big full, you know, full size machines, you know. The BMW really never made the scooters. They've always made this, you know, the the, the serious bike that, well, they've made a single that's not a very popular, but uh, most of the, right. yeah, the, most of their uh, motorcycles up to 1970 were only two sizes. There was a 500 and a 600, even from the pre-war. But during the second world war, Zunda is who had, contracted a larger contract from the uh, arm from the german uh, forces than mm. the bmw did because zundab was equipped to make a uh, extra like heavy duty uh motorcycle versus bmw bmw more was more like a civilian duty but the zundab had built uh, a super heavy duty, you know, e even those motorcycles that can completely submerge. Right, workhorse machines. Yeah, they, they were the ones, Zundup had uh, <clears throat> won that contract of the, of the you know, the heavy duty uh, uh, machinery. Wow, and they could submerge? They could completely submerge, yes. They, were, they, were, they had a huge snorkel coming up like the air intake and they were all routed to that air intake they were completely waterproofed there's uh there are um, uh, some um, you know, on youtube you can find the zundup uh rallies they still have those they go through these deep creeks completely i mean all you see is the dry, uh, the rider <laughs> up to his chest in water and He's on this motorcycle going through the water. It's amazing what they were doing back then. That was astonishing. I'll have to have a look for that. Yeah. And they had these big machine guns mounted on them. They had all this equipment on them. Uh, yeah, Zundup was really... Later, post-war, they, uh, they tried to break into a uh, civilian market, but they failed. They were a little too late. Um, they have uh, produced... Uh, uh, a swing arm, swing arm motorcycle uh, back in 1957. Uh, they've produced 200 units um, and they sent them all to the United States for, uh, to, for the market, to test the market. But um, they had invested so much money into production of this motorcycle that's called a KS601EL. And the EL stood for elastic, <laughs> meaning that 
it had the swing arm. It was a swing arm bike. It's a swing arm instead oh, of a, right. I see. with shock absorbers instead of a uh, plunger, which was the previous. Um, and by that time, by 1957, the BMW was already putting out swing arm motorcycle for two years because their first swing arm bike came out in 1955. 1954 was the last plunger the BMW produced. So when the Zundup had manufactured these 200 units and sent them to the United States, they realized they couldn't sell it for profit. They had, mm. it. yes, it's way overbuilt. And they were out there to prove that they can build a better motorcycle than the BMW. But unfortunately, they shot themselves in the foot by, by doing so. Yeah. And I have one of those bikes, too. <laughs> yeah, that very motorcycle that I was on, uh, actually, last time it was registered, and I still have the license plate with the sticker, 1983. So it had not run for 40 years. Wow. And another thing you. I know that lady owned it to begin with. A lady owned oh. that Zundup. She bought it in Minneapolis. And after she passed away, her brother got it. And her brother sold it to this collector that I bought it from. But the collector that bought it had never had it running. I'm the first, I'm the first person that this bike is running, uh, made, you know, put this bike on the road in 40 years. That's fantastic. It's great to see it out there. That's amazing. Yeah, it's a nice looking bike. But the rest of them, the nine, um, you know, I go back to 1938, <clears throat> which is the R66. And then I have uh, 1950. Uh, 1951, 1954. Then I have the zoomed up as a 1957. Uh, then I have the 1961-2. I have a 1965-2 and the 1969-2. And what I consider the most modern machines that I have is a 1973 slash five and a 1976 r90s which is the ultimate racing bike of those days 1976 it was also the last year they produced the r90s it's the iconic motorcycle that had won many races i don't know exactly the details of the rider you know the but it it, it won quite a bit back in those days that sounds like a good range a good selection you've got something something happening everywhere there yeah yeah I, I'm very happy with it and uh content um most of the uh motorcycles that uh, I felt that I wanted in my collection I wanted something more uh, special uh rare you know maybe on the rare side there are other models that are more common and they're also fine, but you know, I only have so much room. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I hear a lot of motorcycle guys saying that, but they seem to find a bit more space when they want to. <laughs> yeah. And when when we were chatting um, on 
Sunday, you were going back to work on your R51. I think you said you're at your yes, R51. slash two. So you showed me an array of pieces, about 30 pieces. Yeah, that was a uh, that was a transmission. Yes, yes. Uh, a perfect example. You open the can of worms. Perfect example. That is the R51 slash two is a very special uh, model because in 19 uh, they were produced 1950 and the 1951 only. And they are a mix between a pre-war and post-war technology. So because uh, uh, Germany was not allowed to build a uh, motorcycle beyond certain CCs and so forth till 1950, 1950 was the first year they had <clears throat> an opportunity to resume their production of a 500 cc motorcycle which is considered a size a good size motorcycle for back in those days so they've had a bunch of uh, um, engine cases from pre-war and they kind of they put some revised parts on this block and so forth so on but the main difference is this is the only uh, engine with two camshafts it's a twin oh. it's a twin camshaft engine and that's what makes it very unique it looks completely different it it feels completely different when you ride it it has a different power band you know it's just completely different so when i got this motorcycle i actually bought it from belgium <clears throat> i brought it here from belgium i bought it from a collector out there uh, they're very hard to come by, very uh, elusive. They're, you know, they're, there aren't that many around and people generally don't sell them. You know, they generally pass them down, the, pass them to the family or, you know. So uh, my Kickstarter ratchet was stripped. So you go to Kickstarter, of course, it's uh, Kickstart only, right? There's no starter to... <laughs> And it would skip, it would continuously skip, you know. So it was very difficult to get it started. And I bought this motorcycle what six, seven years ago, and I had it running, but it was really a, a nuisance because of the it, the the Kickstarter would constantly slip, and then you hurt your foot, and you know. Uh, so I finally decided to to go ahead and take the you know transmission out and fix it, you know. Well. It's a $40 tiny little, like a, a ratchet piece, but it comes out of a transmission as the last part. <laughs> of course, just to make it awkward. In order, the, the very last part is this piece comes out. It's at the very bottom of the transmission. <laughs> so you have to take the whole thing apart. Well, good thing I did because I found a couple of gears, you know, couple, you know the sliding claw was kind of tired and, some bushings, this and that, and, and when it went back together, it, it's going to work a lot better, and uh, it, it makes me feel good because you know I, I know the, the shape of it now. I've been into it, been into the heart. You know, yes, you know what you're dealing with, and so you've probably saved a few more issues down the line because you've found a few little problems to sort out there. Right, no, there's wear and tear items. You know, normal wear and tear. I mean, these motorcycles yes. they don't have a lot of you know, miles, but when you get them, there are two problems, generally. People that own them in the past, 
are not professionals. They don't understand exactly what they're doing. And the second biggest problem that even if they do understand what they're doing, they don't, they are not equipped with proper tools to do the job. I, I thought I, I'm an auto mechanic. I have a garage full of tools. I mean, we're talking, gosh, nobody has more tools than I do. Believe me, <laughs> maybe a tool truck <laughs> that goes around selling tools, but I have tools for tools. Okay. And I thought, <laughs> yeah, oh yeah. Motorcycle, big deal. You know, I'm just going to buy one and uh, work on it. Right. Forget about it. First thing. You need, you need to buy tools with all the tools. You need specialist tools uh, for each specialty. Each model? Uh, very much so, yes. Wow. Even though, yeah. It's a good job you have this much love because you're keeping these old machines going. Um, hats off to you. And if people want to get more involved, people listening who already love BMWs or pe people who just want to get involved and know more, um, do you belong to Facebook groups or do you go and meet people live? Do you I, you know, it's just not my thing. I, I don't do any of that. I have certain, you know, a few people that I generally ride with and that's about, that's about all. I don't advertise, you know, I don't, I'm not, I'm not on Facebook or uh, any groups that, you know, there are people that, you know, they like doing that. I, I don't take time to do that. It's not something i'm interested in you know maybe someday i make myself happy that's what matters you know and if someone gives it gives me a compliment for something that's great but you know i don't go around showing these bikes or talking about them much you know well most people i haven't found anybody that i could talk to uh as far as technical things because there aren't that many BMW owners these days. If they own a BMW, it's a modern one. I haven't seen much of vintage BMWs. And in general, vintages become <clears throat> sort of a rarity, as you notice. Yeah, I would say so. You're the only person I've seen on these old BMWs. I'd say it's it's a very specialist uh, yeah. situation. Where we go, mostly it's all modern stuff. And uh, I suppose there are, well, somebody told me that, yeah, there are places that vintage motorcycles get together and so forth, so on. And I'm not opposed to uh, going and uh, sharing common interests. It's just, mm. I haven't done it so far, but hopefully I will some, you know, sometime, someday soon. Well, you might get people sending in questions because you're obviously a wealth of knowledge on the subject. You've learned so much and you, you've resourced so much. I mean, you, you've found parts from all over the world for these things you were saying to me. You, you know, you find these, these places that sometimes might have sort of a, a stockpile of things, but, but some places that... It, 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 the parts are available, uh, not all parts, but a, a lot of them are available, but they're, all, they're mostly in Europe. You know, the serious vintage BMW part dealers are the most serious one is in Switzerland. Uh, the person I deal with, uh, for the most part, is in Netherlands and uh, a bunch in Germany. 
you know? So you have to kind of, you know, but we, we get to know each other. I mean, I know who is, I know who is a BMW guy uh, around the, around the uh, United States and so forth, but I don't know of anyone locally, like even in LA. Yes. We're in California for people who don't realize that down near. Yeah, I'm sure there are. Los there. Angeles. There definitely are out there. But once if I do decide to go to these vintage meetings, perhaps I'll meet some people. Yeah, well, hopefully we'll get some feedback. We might have people asking to meet you or, or suggesting where you can go where you might see some glorious machines that you didn't know were loitering around <laughs> in the area. I love, uh, you know, for me, vintage is just that it's, it's good enough. I don't care what it is, really. Uh, when I see these Triumphs and Nortons and uh, <clears throat> uh, different uh, motorcycles, out, it's just, it, it's all appealing to me. You know, it's not just a BMW. A BMW is what I know. But, yes. but I, I, I just, I just enjoy these mechanical early machines, you know, it's just, fa it yeah. fascinates me. Sounds, because you have the thirst for how they work, you, that's how you started when you were a child, building your own. Yes. That's awesome. I suppose. Well, I'm going to say, yeah, I, I'm going to say um, thanks for talking to us, Joe. It's been fantastic. Thank you for having and me. I'm Pleasure. I'm sure we'll get some feedback because it's such a specialist type of machine as well that we're talking about yes it's uh it's very sexy let's put it that way <laughs> yes <laughs> a motorcycle is about sexy right that's how, maximum how appeal is it it's for some people it may be a norton or a triumph or something else other people it's a bmw to each its own you know it really appeals to me thank you so much for having me it was pleasure talking to you it's been fascinating cheerio see you on the road thank you bye-bye